Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So, if you want to find out what people think about a joke, put it up on Facebook, because the people who have very little sense of humor about a joke will immediately tell you that it's not funny or you can't joke about things like this. That happened to me when I put up kind of a joke or a humorous observation involving a clown named Grandma, who was actually a 65-year-old guy performing with the Big Apple Circus who had taken dirty pictures of a young trapeze artist in his trailer. And... and so, I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of bad judgment there and that it's potentially funny. A lot of people didn't. It's one of the things we want to talk about on the show today. When can you joke? Hi, this is me. Before we even start doing the show, I just kind of want to talk to you, sort of host to audience. First of all, I have always believed, you may have heard me say it before on this show, that there are two kinds of people. And to me, this is the most fundamental division or dichotomy in humanity. And, and it's people who think that they're living in a comedy and people who think that they're living in a drama. Uh, I happen to be the first kind of person. And uh, if you're the first kind of person, the second kind of person is going to misunderstand or simply resent your comic understanding of reality on a pretty regular basis. And that happens to me a lot. It happens to me in connection with this show. We've always thought that this show is a good place to talk about serious things, but also funny things and sometimes serious things in a funny way. And people in that second group of people often can't handle this. And and I often do get requests that I apologize for, <laughs> for some joke I've told or for some lighthearted remark or anything like that. And I always say I'm not going to because I, I don't I don't think that way about it. And I also don't feel sorry that I said it. I could give you some examples. But I'll, I'll just tell you one really quick story and then we'll get going. At some point, I think in early 2018, I decided that we would do a show uh, where we would uh, just take calls and, and talk about the problems that public radio was having with sexual har harassment and the kind of hashtag Me Too movement. And, you know, I, I be, and because, in fact, Garrison Keillor and Leonard Lopate and Jonathan Schwartz and John Hockenberry and Tom Ashbrook, all these people were getting suspended or, call, or fired. Or, um, and so I put up a little announcement on Facebook explaining that we were just going to talk about this very peculiar moment uh, in the history of public broadcasting and, and that it was going to be on Monday. And then I said at the bottom, unless I'm gone by then. Um, and so Facebook is a great place to find the people who think they're <laughs> living in a drama. So two people said, well, you know, you can't make that joke. You can't you can't joke about something like that. It's it's too serious. And so I kind of uh, and a couple of people I knew, one person I knew pretty well said that. And I kind of started a private conversation with her. And I said, look, I finally said, look, because this is the example I always use. I always say, look, in 1968, Mel Brooks released The Producers. At that time, there was a, a living cohort of Holocaust survivors and their immediate kin. And, and many of them would experience 
searing existential pain from the notion that there's anything funny about people in Nazi uniforms. There just can't be. And Mel Brooks knew that, and he did it anyway, and it's the funniest movie in the history of cinema. Uh, and this one I was, conver- I was conversing with online. She said, oh, well, I love the producers. And I thought, yeah, so you're willing to have that group of people experience searing existential pain. Uh, you're w- over jokes about Hitler, but you can't handle a joke about Garrison Keillor? Um, and that exactly is the kind of thing that I want to talk about today. We've got a great lineup to do it. So without further ado. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around and then we found the man for you. So not too long ago on PBS, there was a documentary called The Last Laugh, Uh, and it it was directed by uh, the documentary filmmaker Fern Perlstein. Um, When it was on in my house, the other person in the house called me and said, get down here and watch this right now, because she knows this is something that I talk about all the time. So this film, The Last Laugh, is about that whole question. Can the Holocaust be funny? Are there ways in which you can make jokes uh, about the Nazi era and about the Holocaust. Uh, we are, it's a terrific movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Um, and it really sort of gets to a lot of these things. And it involves a lot of comedians uh, essentially sort of trying out humor about the Holocaust. Uh, so joining us now is the aforementioned uh, Fern Perlstein. Uh, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So, um, this was, uh, in fact, as I say, there was a living cohort of Holocaust survivors. There still are living Holocaust survivors. One of them figures prominently uh, in, in your documentary. You talked to Mel Brooks. Um, he would have known as this movie was going to come out that there would be that problem. But he felt there was a need to make that movie or he had a need to make that movie uh, anyway. Did you ultimately understand how how he worked that out in his head? Well, you know, he comes from such a distinct place where he believes, you know, he's bringing down, you know, Hitler through comedy, through making fun of him. He's bringing him down to size. So he felt that that was a stronger weapon than possibly a gun was. So um, now not everybody might believe that, but, but he strongly believes that. And um, he was making fun of the Nazis as early as two years after the war in the Catskills. So this is, is definitely, you know, where he sees this as being a necessary thing. I mean, you will talk to other satirists and, and historians, and they will say, well, you know, y- you can bring... Hitler down to size all you want by comedy, but that didn't stop the Nazis from killing six million Jews and six million other people. So, um, you know, we have to weigh all these different factors. Right. And so, I mean, um, I have so many things I want to I ask about this, but presumably one of the things that Mel Brooks ultimately decides is, and, and that almost all comedians decide is, I mean, there's a moment in your documentary, I haven't seen it for a while, uh, but I recall a moment in a documentary where some contemporary comedian tells a joke 
that uh, that I thought was pretty funny. I can't remember what the joke was, but you cut to Mel Brooks and he's watched the joke and he's having a little trouble with it. Um, and and I thought that was it. What, what did you make? What did you make of that? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because I had relayed the joke to him, and that was the face he made. I mean, the joke was it was right after the Oscars a couple years ago, and uh, Heidi Klum, who is German, was wearing this incredibly what she described as hot, you know, gown. And she said, I haven't seen a German look this hot since they were, you know, throwing Jews into the ovens. Mm. So he, he, he was a little stunned by the joke, admitted that he thought it was funny and that the rhythm of, was good, but thought it was in absolutely terrible taste. Right. And so there's there's a way in which I think Brooks and the other comedians implied in all this is, you know, you could be um, the kind of person you could be sort of more of a Buddhist about all this and say, you know what, if, if anybody is going to experience pain, to, you know, pain and, and, and hurt and, and disturbed emotions from something, I'm not going to say it. But all of these comedians have decided what that there's just a greater making people laugh. Is a greater good than worrying about whatever size cohort of people are going to have some pain from a joke, right? What right. do you What do you make of that? I mean, you 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 followed a Holocaust. Well, you, know, so, yeah, go ahead. you know, it's interesting. I mean, my film doesn't say that. In other words, com- there are comedians who just think that making the joke is either important enough or political enough, or you know funny enough that they're willing to lose audience members over. I mean, for it, it's a little different than how I approached this whole thing because my film sort of asks, is this okay? Right. These are the different these are the different options, these are the different factors. This is what most people think makes it okay, but then there are others that still don't make it okay. So it's sort of like giving the audience all of the different you know, ideas, thoughts, and options, and then giving them the chance to decide. Um, you know, you take a comedian like Sarah Silverman, who's so political, that she's really making, you know, a very smart statement and, and, and does not get upset if she loses her audience over it, you know. She's making fun of Holocaust deniers, but it's so subtle. And, you know, you might find that, you, you know, someone like Renee, the Holocaust survivor in my movie, who's watching these jokes on YouTube and sometimes thinks they're funny, sometimes doesn't think they're funny, you know, that, that she may completely miss her, you know, Sarah Silverman's jokes because there's a complete generation gap on top of everything else. Um, but, you know, Sarah like literally says in the film, you know, if, if somebody can't understand that this is what I'm getting at, then they're not the audience for me is basically her point. Right. Let's, we're, I want to play a clip from uh, your uh, film. One of the defenses, one of the ways of thinking about this is if it's funny enough, you can probably get away from it. You're going to hear the voices of Harry Shearer, Susie Essman, Rob Reiner, and Judy Gold pretty much in that sequence. A great joke really does trump all rules. But it's got to be a great joke. And the higher the stakes, the higher the standard for how good the joke has to be. It has to be funny. If you're going to cross the line, you better be funny. Of course it has to be funny. Otherwise, it's not a joke. A joke about a mother-in-law can be that good and, and pass muster. But a joke about this stuff has to be like, 
you know, you're, you're, you're ashamed that you laughed at it, but you're laughing because it's like you can't help yourself. So I'll never forget, I actually did have this thought, and comedians do have these thoughts that go really overboard, and I thought, could I ever tell anyone this? And I'm thinking, if I have this thought, someone else has the thought. But I was at one point watching footage of one of the concentration camps being liberated on one of the history, you know, World War, World War II channels. And uh, so I'm watching this video of a concentration camp being liberated, and I actually thought to myself, now, if I was standing online naked for the gas chambers, would I hold my stomach in? So for Perlstein, one of the decisions yeah. you had to make was even like whether you put that joke in the documentary. Yes. Um, yes. So, so uh, talk about your thinking about that. Okay, well, that's a good one, because definitely one of the darker jokes in the film. But surprisingly, I have never had one person complain to me about that joke. Now, I think it's because of two things. First of all, it has to be funny, as the comedians have said, but it also has to have good intent. And whether or not this one falls into that category of intent, it, it touches on body issues that everybody can relate to. So it, it is a joke about the concentration camps because that's where we're placed. But it's really a joke about body image. And everybody can sort of relate to it or think, oh, that, that crossed my mind too. Of course, it wouldn't cross a Holocaust survivor's mind, but it would cross somebody else's mind who has no experience similar to that. Right. So the, the tension in that joke is, A, as you say, um, a, a, Mike Nichols has a great uh, thing that he says about humor. He says, there's two reasons to tell a joke. One of them is because it's funny, and the other reason is because it's you. And by you, he means it's something that the teller and presumably the listener, to it, it's, it embodies some aspect of their experience. And so, you know, in this case, people can understand body images. People can understand sucking in their stomachs, holding in their stomachs in public situations. So, so yeah, so that's funny on the basis of being you. And then the other part of the tension of the joke is this is the worst possible place in the world. The, this is the most horrible, extreme circumstances, which you would think would just overwhelm any other consideration. So that's what's kind of funny about this. Now, let's listen. In, listen, this is not in your movie. This is Larry David hosting yeah. Saturday Night Live. Uh, so he comes out uh, and towards the end of his monologue, he does this. I'd grown up in Poland when Hitler came to power and was sent to a concentration camp? Would I still be checking out women in the camp? <laughs> I think I would, you know? Hey, Shlomo, Shlomo, look at that one over there by Barrett Satan. Oh my God, is she gorgeous. Oh, oh I've had my eye on her for weeks. Yeah, I, I, I've been, I, I'd like to go up and say something to her. Of course, the problem is, there are no good opening lines in a concentration camp. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> they treating you okay? <laughs> you know, if we ever get out of here, I'd love to take you out for some latkes. <laughs> you like latkes? Yeah. What? What'd I say? Is it me or is it the whole thing? <laughs> All right, so uh, he took a fair amount of grief for that. Um, 
And so I don't know, having done that whole documentary, having explored this yeah. whole subject and list, looked, looked at both the ups and the downs of all this, I, I, when you saw that, which I'm assuming that you have, I did. how did you react? Well, you know, it's interesting. that I, I, I was going to bring that up if you hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very similar kind of joke in terms of where the placement of it as Judy Gold's joke. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, now it's context. And that is a very important thing, like who your audience is. You know, had he written this into his character on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I don't think he would have gotten the same flack as he did for it as doing stand-up where he's, you know, not known to most people as a stand Like, most people have not seen him do stand-up, you know. So it's, it's different. But more importantly, in my view is this joke came off of him setting the tone of all of these uh, men being accused of sexual harassment mm-hmm. who were Jewish, and then he sort of led right into this joke. Now, that's a subject that's too soon for people. It's like you said in the beginning of your show. People are not ready to make jokes about that. So he already put it in a place where people were uncomfortable you know, of the guy hitting on the woman. The timing of that right now is very difficult for people. So um, that's, that's, my, that's my thinking why, for the majority of people, it didn't work. All right, so let's actually, uh, we're getting near the end of this conversation. Uh, we, we're going to be moving on to some people who've actually done research, uh, almost scientific research, into comedy. But, but since we're talking about time, Katie, let, let's play A1. This is from The Last Laugh, from Procene's documentary. This, you're going to hear Mel Brooks and then Susie Essman. I was very brave then. Maybe I'm not so brave now, but I was very, very brave because it was in questionable taste in, in, in 19... 19- 48 when I worked in the right two years or three years after the end of the war to be doing uh, Hitler bits. Time makes a difference. Obviously, nobody cares if you do Inquisition jokes. The Inquisition. Let's begin. The Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. Had I done... The Inquisition, as a movie in 1492, I would have been in a lot of trouble. But enough time had gone by. Confess! Don't be boring! Five centuries had gone by, and so it was okay. It's better to lose your skull cap than your skull. Somebody once said... Tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I always felt like, why wait? Steve Allen, Lenny Bruce, I've heard all kinds of people uh, um, giving credit for that, for that comment. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, uh, and I don't know what that time limit is. I don't know. It's Time opens up different avenues of, of thought and acceptance. So, Fern, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, Brooks is kind of working both sides of that street, too, because he is talking about the fact that he was doing Nazi humor in 1948 when, you know, I mean, not enough time, one might say, had uh, gone gone past. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried, who very much thinks this way, there's a Funnier Die has this great montage of, uh, of Gilbert Gottfried doing humor about all kinds of things in history. And at the end, I think he does this thing where he, he does a piece, he does a joke about, he goes, I don't see why people think this Schwarzkopf 
Kafka uh, disaster of 2030 was such a big deal. You know, the, although everybody lives in Sector 8 is a Mirops. And somebody says, <laughs> no, well, that really is too soon. It took place in the future. Um, but, I mean, I think Gottfried asks a pretty good question there, which is, why wait? Like, what's the big deal about time? Yeah. I mean, Carl Reiner even says in the film, I mean, if, it, if you wait too long, it's not funny anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, that's part of what makes people, you know, like throws people off balance and makes them laugh. But again, you know, uh, I, there's so many factors to mm-hmm. me, like who your audience is, is such a big one to me, you know, like... Uh, you know, yes, there were Jewish people in the Catskills two years after the war that came up to him and said, how could you make these jokes? And he's like, and he, you know, sort of brushed them off because he felt like he made enough people laugh that it was okay. Um, Right. Some of it is like if you have that comic muse, if you are possessed by the notion that you really can make people laugh with uh, uh, with something and you really are the genius that Mel Brooks was at the time that he was making the producers, you just do it. You know, I think you yeah. just do it and 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 let God sort out uh, the details. <laughs> and, and and what many people said, including Carl Reiner and um, this comedian whose father was in Auschwitz, that if you were funny before the camps, you were funny in the camp. So there were people making jokes like this in the camps. I mean, they probably were more subtle and they probably, you know, were very careful how they did it. But it, it, if that's who you were, you were doing that. Yeah, no, I guarantee you as an Irish American, there were... Irish Americans making jokes during the potato famine, too. I mean, I just know us people well enough. Fern Perlstein, it's been so great to talk to you. If people have not seen this documentary, it's called The Last Laugh. Uh, It's essential if you have a real uh, interest in this whole question. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the attempt to study, more or less scientifically, uh, the very question we're talking about. It doesn't make me smile. I wish I could. Can, can you imagine what we thought when you said AIDS for Everyone Foundation? <laughs> oh, brother! <laughs> hey, we're all laughing. Oh, uh, hey, yeah, we, we would have never laughed about this before. Well, don't you see what this means? It's been 22.3 years, so AIDS is finally funny! He's right! It's happened! Hey, everybody! AIDS is finally funny! All right! Woohoo! Hooray! I knew it would be funny one day. <laughs> AIDS. <laughs> then it's time. We can undo the banner. Ooh. Oh. Tom, I'm standing in the town square where just moments ago it was declared that AIDS can finally be joked about. What a great day for humanity. <laughs> AIDS quilt. <laughs> oh, boy, this is fantastic. I'm so glad AIDS is funny now. 
All right. That is, of course, a South Park uh, doing it, doing in their not particularly scalpel-like surgical way, um, uh, some material about the thing that we're talking about, that this notion that when a certain amount of time passes, um, you can joke in a, in a different way and you can joke about things that were unjokeable uh, before. I, I'm not entirely sure how much I, I believe that as a hard and fast rule. Let me just tell you, you could be listening to this show at any point. Uh, I mean, obviously, this will survive uh, uh, as a podcast. If you're listening to it live, you're listening to it on the day that Billy Graham died. If I had a reasonably good Billy Graham joke, I'd do it. Um, you know, he's 99 years old. He's pretty sure he's going to heaven. I, you know, I don't really... <laughs> I don't feel like I have to wait 10 years to do a Billy Graham joke. I don't really particularly have one right now, but I'm just saying. Uh, so it's, it may not always be the case um, that you have to wait. But this is something that uh, Caleb Warren has thought long and hard about, assistant professor of marketing at the University of Arizona. His research includes things like too close for comfort or too far to care, finding humor in distant tragedies and close mishaps. The rise and fall of humor, psychological distance, modulates humorous responses to tragedy, uh, benign violation theory uh, I want to talk very much uh, a little bit later about benign violation theory, which I think is a really kind of an interesting uh, idea. Uh, but uh, Caleb Warren, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. So, I mean, one of the problems here as we try to figure out, you know, why things work and why they don't work and whether, for example, time is a particularly important factor is, I mean, humor doesn't just do one thing, right? Comedy does, it has a bunch of different purposes, a bunch of different effects. Uh, there's been a lot of thinking about this over time. I mean, would you agree anyway that, that it's, it's impossible to assign one central purpose to comedy? Uh, th that's probably true. Uh, I mean, most most um, psychological and emotional phenomena like humor have multiple functions, multiple purposes. Um, so I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, ranging from just making us laugh to catharsis to helping us explore maybe a, a topic that would be difficult for us to explore, less comfortable for us to explore if we did it in, in a more serious way. Um, I'm going to... Um, uh, you know, we heard that South Park clip. I I'm going to also, um, I I'm going to have you listen to an another clip. This is going to be, by the way, uh, KDB3. So everybody remembers that after 9-11, there was a period of time when there was a pretty serious debate about whether uh, we, we, we could ever be funny again. There were people saying that it would be impossible for Americans to be funny again. The late night shows, uh, the comedy shows waited days and days and days and then came out and did sort of, you know, explained that they were going to try to be funny again. Famously, Giuliani appeared on stage with the cast of SNL and a bunch of New York firefighters and first responders. And, and at the end, Lauren Michaels said, you know, well, can we be funny funny again? And, and Giuliani said, why start now? Uh, and got everybody laughing. So there was that whole question. Can you ever laugh after 9-11? Well, of course you can. We'll get our senses of humor back. But can you ever laugh about 9-11. Well, that took a little bit longer, at least in some venues. So let's go to Saturday Night Live again. It's 2014. Uh, here's Chris Rock. They should change the name from the Freedom Tower to the Never Going In There Tower. Because I'm never going in there. There is no circumstance that will ever get me in that building. Are you kidding me? Does this building duck? What, what are they thinking? Like, who's the corporate sponsor? Target? Stop it! In the same 
spot, they put another skyscraper in the same spot. What kind of arrogant Floyd Mayweather crap is this? In the same spot. What businesses are they going to put in the Freedom Tower? They better put some mandatory stuff in there. Stuff you can't get out of, like the IRS, family court, DMV. Because they put a sunglass hut in there, it's going to be empty. All right, so, I mean, Caleb Warren, this is a really good example of the passage of time. Because, I mean, for those of us who have strong recollections of 2001, it was impossible to imagine that anybody would ever make a joke like, what's its corporate sponsor? Target. So is just that just the passage of time? And, and what does time actually do in that situation? So what time does, and time adds a psychological distance to an event or an occurrence or a, st- a stimulus, some, anything really. Um, so time adds distance, and distance reduces threat. Um, so as you're farther, as you feel farther away from something in space or time or even socially, uh, whatever that thing is, is less threatening. Um, for example, encountering a snake right in front of you is very threatening, but a day later, it's not nearly as threatening. Same thing if the snake's on your foot versus 20 feet away. Um, and as threat subsides, uh, it's easier to see humor in something. Um, so our, our basic idea behind humor is that a, a lot of instances of humor, uh, when we experience humor, which means amusement, laughter, the perception that something's funny, we, we feel that because we perceive something to be a benign violation, meaning there's something that threatens either you personally or your way of viewing the world or your beliefs about how things should work, um, but at the same time you're okay with it. And so what time does is it reduces threat, making it easier to see something that's threatening or wrong as benign, hence funny. So it's a lot easier to laugh about 9-11 13 years later than, say, the next day, as Russell Brand found out when he dressed up like Osama bin Laden for his television program the day after 9-11 and was promptly fired. Right. So, um... Yeah, I think also, if you think about the Chris Rock thing, well, what's he really joking about? He's not joking about, isn't it funny that a bunch of terrorists hijacked some planes and flew them into buildings, right? Uh, he's joking. He's way, way beyond that. He's really just joking about fear. And he's joking about, uh, actually, after he tells, he does that little bit of monologue, he says something like, you know, I was mugged. 27 years ago on the corner of 48th and 8th, and I've never been back there. <laughs> you know? And that, that he's really joking about our tendency to avoid situations that we think could repeat some kind of tragedy. So there he's basically just getting on some kind of common ground with us. Yeah, I think that's part of what makes something seem benign. One of the interpretations of benign is it makes sense or it's, uh, it's it's reasonable according to some other logic and uh, this feeling of familiarity like oh yeah I've been there I've experienced that um, that makes sense that you would never go back to a place where you were mugged um, all of that helps helps make um, a statement or an argument or anything seem seem more benign um, which I think is one reason why some one reason why some people um, say it's it's funny because it's true which is a very misleading statement, because a lot of times something's a lot less funny if it is true. Um, 
for example, most of the stuff on South Park would be a lot less funny if it were actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, because truth is another form of, of distance. As something is fictional, it's more psychologically distant than if it's true. Um, so just like time uh, reduces threat, making something fictional or hypothetical reduces threat. So, I mean, the other part of the time equation, though, is the one that runs kind of in the other direction, which is that at times it's thrillingly funny to listen to somebody joking about something that's recent enough so that it's, it's not inert. Dave Chappelle has done some, um, some stand-up specials where he's joked in a very real, direct, and present way about aspects of the Me Too movement, stuff that a lot of other people are just saying is completely out of bounds. Sarah Silverman certainly would not hesitate to make jokes about something that wasn't way, way back in the distance. And it's thrilling and exciting and therefore funny in a different way, I would assume, to hear somebody go there not having waited. Well, it's so um, there's a different side to this. We've only talked about one side of how time can make something funnier by reducing threat. Um, and that, that means it makes something more benign. But if you completely remove a threat, there's no more violation. So um, that's using our... our, our technical theoretical jargon, but what that basically means is if enough time passes, something seems irrelevant, and so there's, no, there's nothing to joke about anymore. Um, and so joking about, um, well, the Me Too movement, um, you know, in 10 years might, well, we'll see how big the movement is and how long it lasts, but if it's, if it's a, a faster thing, um, then probably in 10 years it won't be as funny to joke about as it is right now provided the jokes are, are done correctly. Um, so in one of our studies, what we found is we investigated, uh, we had people rate how funny they thought different tweets about Hurricane Sandy were. And we asked this right after the storm hit, and then a few days after, and a few weeks after, and a month after. And we see this curvilinear pattern, meaning initially um, the jokes are not very funny. The tweets about Hurricane Sandy are not very funny. But the same tweets couple weeks later become more funny and then over the course of months um, after the event they become less funny again Um, and it it fits with this idea that in order to find something funny you need to you need to see some threat some violation but at the same time it can't be so threatening that you are horrified or offended I think it, that's, it's a really interesting theory. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly tell you a joke uh, from old Jews telling jokes, which I think sort of fits into this, um, assuming I understand the benign violation theory properly. So uh, this is from the play Old Jews Telling Jokes. Uh, three Jewish men are walking down the street, and they come to a church, and the sign says, if you come in and convert uh, will to Christianity, we'll pay you $100. And one of the guys says, you know what? I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to do it, uh, and I'm going to get the money. Uh, And so he goes in there and he's gone for an hour Uh, and and he walks out with a big smile on his face. And his two friends said, well, so did they give you the hundred dollars? And he says, is that all you people think about? Um, Okay, so that's a joke that gets a pretty good laugh with little Jews telling jokes. It's a it's a violation, right? It's bringing up a horrible prejudice that exists uh, about one ethnicity. But somehow or other, it's been turned into something that uh, maybe because it's a joke about the prejudice as opposed to uh, an actual joke involving the prejudice. Is that what makes it benign? Um, well, so this is a nice example of how 
um, a joke that's funny to one person might not be to another. So mm-hmm. with any sort of um, disparaging jokes, mm-hmm. humor making fun of a race or ethnicity or gender, um, there's there's this balance where, just like with time, um, there you need to hit on some sort of insult, which is the violation part, but you only find it funny if you're accepting or basically generally okay with the insult being levied. So if you are very offended by people referring to Jews as Jewish people as Jewish, I mean, sorry, as, as cheap, then that wouldn't be benign and wouldn't be funny. Um, whereas if you recognize that stereotype but um, are okay with it, or at least it, the way it's being portrayed in this context, then the joke seems benign and is funny. So it's, I mean, it's similar. There's, uh, for example, racist people find jokes about black people, making fun of black people funnier than less racist people. Uh, There are lots of findings like that. Um, Misogynistic people find sexist jokes funnier. Um, We're going to um, wrap this up and say thank you very much to uh, Caleb Warren. We're going to bring some uh, people who are who work in the field of comedy uh, in here, including some people that, you know, from their prior experiences here. Caleb Warren is an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Arizona. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Um, I have to do a few thank yous right now. The biggest thank you then, therefore, goes right to Katie Tularski, the big kid who uh, stepped in. She's been running the board here on kind of a complicated show. A lot of guests, a lot of clips, stuff like that. Uh, Jonathan McPants uh, is the actual producer of this particular episode. Our our, um, our excellent intern, Garnett, Garnett McLaughlin, which I keep saying just sounds like a name to conjure with. It's just a good name. Uh, she's in there uh, running the phones for us. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of other people to thank. The part of Bill Curry was played by Shecky Green. All right. So we we wanted to talk to um, actual uh, practitioners of comedy uh, about these questions. And we actually have two people who appear pretty regularly with us on the nose, although they've never met one another because they appear in different locations around the state with us. One of them, uh, you know very well, Carolyn Payne, an actress, comedian, dancer, uh, and founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian and a writer and a host of Fantasy Filmball Podcast. Uh, he operates out of New Haven. Uh, and in just a second, you'll also meet Mike Bent. Mike Bent uh, teaches writing uh, in the comedic arts program at Emerson College and is a performing comedian and magician. Uh, I'm going to ask all of you this question. So, Carolyn, I'll start with you. Um, I've never heard you tell a really, really transgressive joke. Uh, what's your philosophy about this? Um, I, For me, I get really nervous with that. For me, I don't <laughs> want an it's not that I don't want to offend someone. It's that I don't want to make people sad. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the whole point of comedy for me is to kind of is to make people think and, you know, and, and make them laugh and maybe, maybe even make them hate you or hate what you're talking about or hate anything, but just not to make them feel sad. 
All right. Um, I, I'm being told, I thought you guys didn't know each other, but I'm being told uh, that you, you have worked together. Yes, so, Sean and I have. Yeah. So, Sean, uh, what about you? Do you have sort of a, an overarching thought process about this? For me, it's all about perspective. Uh, I, t- I tell a lot of jokes in a, with a variety of different topics, but it's all about like how you're coming across because I've got jokes where I mention all sorts of things that most people wouldn't mention, but it's all about how how well I cook it up. You know what I mean? If I if if if, if it's like, if it's like a joke about like let's say AIDS, I'm not gonna just do the first thought I have in my head and put it on Twitter because uh, it might not be a fully cooked thought and it's it's gonna lend itself to being uh, to a lot of backlash if I if I didn't really cook it up the right way and like get my point across the right way. Right. And I think also, um, before we go to Mike about this, too, but um, but Caroline, I think there's also like you're on the radio right now. So a lot of people can hear you who maybe don't know you that well and maybe haven't signed up for anything. And when you're on Twitter, you're effectively publishing your thoughts so that God knows who could read it. I'm thinking that when you're working in a club, I mean, there's a couple of jokes that I'm dying to do. I can't do them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on, on WNPR. I, I, I'm going to ask both of you about this, but I'll start with you, Carolyn. Um, when you're in a club, there's a different kind of audience with a different set of expectations. Yeah, and I think it's it's a time and place thing. I think like judging your audience I, and, and knowing what where you can and how you can push them. I think the worst, Colin knows this, the worst experience I ever had as a stand-up, <laughs> he's laughing already, was at a retirement community. It I, I literally, I ended up in tears from this because nothing that I could throw out there was flying with them. And it, it edgy wouldn't have worked. I mean, just benign stuff didn't even work. So it's the kind of thing where there are places where you can push the envelope and, and test the water and, and really see, like, can this workshop a joke around something that you find? Like, you know, I, I to me, the hashtag Me Too movement, that's something that I, I kind of have some thoughts, like, that I want to I wanna play with that. Because I think there's something fundamentally funny about a hashtag tweeted by Alyssa Milano being the root of a very powerful and amazing movement. But there's something innate in that. So it's hard, but it's hard to find the audience that is going to help you grow that to the right spot. And Twitter is dangerous because, like, once you lay it out there, it's, it's out. You can't even edit a tweet. That's what makes me so nervous. If you make a spelling error, you're, you're just, you're doomed. It's out there. Right, Sean, I'm assuming you think the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, like, even in a club setting, you got to know that what you're going to what you're gonna say, first of all, you might be in front of the wrong audience that night, but also even in a club, <laughs> if you're trying out a new joke, even if it's if it's the most banal topic, if it's if it's a if it's a joke about pants, you tell a joke about pants. If it's not ready for the stage, people might not like it. So you have to you have to apply that same logic to any joke you're going to tell. If you're telling a joke about pedophilia, it's first of all people going to push back automatically. And also, if it's not ready, that's just going to lend itself to it's just a worse pushback when it's about pedophilia as opposed to pants. Well, let, let's try that out. Um, well, we've got a clip here, and I, I, you, some of you could probably guess what the clip is going to be. We've had two clips already from Saturday Night Live opening monologues. Uh, here's Louis C.K. I think it's 2015, uh, and here we go. Because child molesters are very tenacious people. They love molesting childs. It's crazy. It's like their favorite thing. I mean, when you can, it's so crazy because when you consider the risk in being a child molester, speaking not of even the damage you're doing, but the risk, there's no worse life available to a human than being a caught child molester. And yet they still do it. Which from, you can only really surmise that it must be really good. I mean, from their point of view, from their, 
from their point of view, it must be amazing for them to risk so much. Be How do you think I feel? It's my last show, probably. So um, this might be an unfair time to bring Mike Bent into the conversation, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mike Bent, as I said, teaches writing in the comedic arts program at Emerson College. He's a performing comedian and magician. So, um, Mike, you heard Sean say uh, something about doing a pedophilia joke. Well, well, there it is, you know, in a really, really public, preserved forever on YouTube uh, context. I, I don't know. What's your reaction, Mike, to that material? I mean, I didn't really find it all that funny. I mean, it's kind of shocking, and I think that's sort of the initial response from the audience. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of, especially with Louie, it hasn't aged well. No. You know, considering everything else that's going on. Right. So he, he's got his problems. But, right. But, but Sean, you know, in a way, he does get that first wave of laughter that's kind of combined with people yelling. I mean, there's sort of an excitement uh, about the fact that he, you know, he sort of worked this out. He's worked out the timing and the intonation. This isn't, you know, just something some spur of the moment thought he's had. Right. He's decided to do this. And there is he's generating some excitement just by doing it at all. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the setting, like, the, first of all, when, you know, when I was talking about doing a joke about pedophilia, that's the exact joke I was thinking about. <laughs> uh, I love that joke because of the setting. To go on SNL and do a joke about pedophilia, which is like the most, for a stand-up comedian, you don't really get it, like, on a bigger stage, and he's going to go on this place. But, of course, he, 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 he's probably been working at the cellar for weeks getting that joke just right to go on SNL because he knows if, you're gonna, if I'm going to go do this joke, it has to be perfect. It has to be to the point where, like, even if I get backlash, I'm fine with it because... I know I got the response I wanted from the audience, and I know that I might get some some heat back from it, but at least I have the evidence that people in this room were laughing at it. So you can be mad, but the people in this room were laughing at it, and that's fine with me. So, so Carolyn, you know, we've established that um, assisted living audiences may be kind of tough, but the other audience that's regarded as kind of tough these days is on the other end of the age spectrum. We know that Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld are saying they don't want to pay, play college audiences anymore because there's too many things that are off the table. There are too many things that are taboo. Uh, there's a, a raised level of sensitivity and, and a sense that you just don't joke about certain things. You being much closer to that age cohort than I am, I don't know. Do you buy that argument? Um, you know, I've I've played at college campuses and I, I do think like college college kids do love a bandwagon to jump on. So if there's any, you know, movement that they're going to get behind. But so I, I think, yes, that can be true. But I think it is how the, the joke is is worked and how you're approaching things, because if you are going to try to examine what makes like that Louis C.K., clip funny is i mean there's that shock value which shock can can make us laugh out of that nervous laughter but also there at the heart comedy can help you relate to things even extreme things that you don't want to relate to it's like why it's it's why thinking about hitting on somebody in in a you know in a in a camp in a concentration camp is funny because you if you don't, if you're thinking about living in a concentration camp, like you still have day to day life there to some extent. So it, it is making finding the something common in all that you're talking about that people can laugh about something that's relatable. So, I mean, not like you can make pedophilia relatable, but he's trying to find like, why would people do this? Right. He's exploring a question that might have lurked in the back of your mind at some point. You know, why would somebody take that? Risk? And I think that that's where like great comedy 
that's where it dives to is that thought that's in the back of everyone's mind that they want to be able to express or have a conversation about but would feel in just a normal setting kind of like, oh, I don't know if I should say that. Mike Bent, you have a pretty good front row seat uh, to the young generation, to the college generation. What's your reaction to that whole idea, particularly to Seinfeld and Rock saying, no, I just I can't joke for that audience anymore? You know, first of all, I don't see colleges affording them. So I don't know how many colleges <laughs> they actually do. Right. The same thing. You know, um, and also with, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, I mean, he's their dad's age or older. And I, I just think God. that's. <laughs> I've, you know, I've always thought of the college market as comedians. It's a pretty young market. I mean, everyone I know, I mean, I, I did, you know, hundreds of colleges. You just sort of age out of that market. But what about you know? that idea that they, that they have a lot of rules and sensitivities and sensibilities, things that you just can't say on a college campus anymore? Yeah, but no one's, no one's telling them specifically not to do certain things, I don't think. It's really the audience is the ultimate, you know, judge of that. And it's just... A lot of stuff just isn't relevant to these to the kids on campus. It's so just not funny. Do you think of, we're back to the Harry Shearer rule from that concentration camp documentary? If it's funny enough, if it's well, yeah. I mean, I like I was showing in my class the very first episode of SNL, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a skit in there where um, it was a takeoff on an old Geritol ad where a husband would have a wife and like my wife, she's a mother, you know, a teacher, she's this. I think I'll keep her, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? And she takes Geritol. That's how she does it all. And the joke was, it was Chevy Chase with Michael O'Donohue, and this is my wife. And it's, you know, and doing this exact same commercial, but it just happened to be two men. And I'm sure at the time that was hilarious, but now that's, like, not even a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't care about that. So it's just sort of like, how is this even a joke? I think they see it a little bit differently than we do. Um, we are going to have to wrap up this conversation, which is too bad because I've got lots of other things that I would love to talk about. But I first of all want to thank uh, the comics uh, who are here uh, right now, Carolyn Payne, uh, Sean Murray. Uh, thanks very, very much also to Mike Bend, who teaches writing in the Comedic Arts Program at Emerson, uh, is a performing comedian and, and magician. Thanks to uh, Jonathan McPants for putting this show together. Uh, and also thanks to Katie Tularski for jumping on the board in a crisis. We always have crises around here. We'll be back tomorrow. And thanks for listening today. Bye.